This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Hugh Van Kylenberg, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks so much for having me, Cheryl. I'm super excited about this. The book is called The Resilience Project. The subtitle is Finding Happiness Through Gratitude, Empathy and Mindfulness. Now, this is a subject that's very dear to my heart, resilience. Resilience in children and resilience in adults. And I feel, Hugh, that more and more we're raising children not to be resilient. Now, I think that's a sweeping statement and a lot of people are going to be mad at me for saying that. But I think we should get into that. But before we do, I want to know how you came to writing this book. What is it that has made you an authority, if you like, on resilience? Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I, I've never really seen myself as an authority on resilience. So I never see myself as, a, as an expert on mental health or any of those things. I just... I suppose I've always been really fascinated by the question, what is it that makes us happy? And I've always been fascinated by that because for the first 16 years of my life, I don't think I could have been any happier. We had such an incredible upbringing, a, a younger sister and a younger brother, mum and dad, happily married. And when my sister was 14 years old and I was 16 years old, she was diagnosed with a mental illness, anorexia nervosa, and it ravaged her as mental illnesses tend to do to people. But it also ravaged our family and it was... I just remember very distinctly at 16 years of age thinking, gosh, mum and dad aren't happy anymore. And it was a really confronting, and as the oldest sibling, I kind of felt like it was my responsibility to make everyone be happy again. So yeah. um, from a very young age, well, when I say a very young age, I was 16 years old, I became fascinated with what is it that makes people happy? And I've just been paying attention to that, I suppose, question, that area of um, you know, field of study for, for a long time. I, I went into primary school teaching because I had this very naive and ambitious thought that if I am a primary school teacher, the kids that I teach won't ever get a mental illness and their families will never go through what my family went through, which is so naive. But I didn't quite know what else to do at that point in my life, I guess. And it wasn't until I was 28 years old teaching in, a, in an underprivileged community up in the Himalayas, the north of India, that I lived in a village with people who you know, who slept on the floor and no running water, no electricity, yet I still feel like I've never met or lived with a happier group of people in my life. Um, I want to interrupt you there because that really resonated with me reading the book that often we talk about developing countries and how they, outside of Scandinavia, I guess, um, they're always up there when, when we're measuring happiness, isn't it? Yeah. And I feel that happiness is the beginning of gratitude and empathy and mindfulness because until you find your own personal happiness, you really can't share anything else. But the thing with happiness in first world countries is it's so blurred. You know, people are looking for ultimate happiness. Like on Friday, I'll be happy when, you know, the weekday yeah. ends or on Thursday, I'll be happy when whatever. Instead of finding it in the moment, like right now, me talking to you is making me happy. And happiness is as simple as that. It's as simple as the moment. And I think until you find that, 
it's hard mm. really to move on, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's so much in what you just said then. There is so much. And I feel like you've, in a, in a minute, you've covered about three chapters of the book there. So I'm very impressed. <laughs> I could have been a lot more succinct in my storytelling, obviously. But um, I think, so one of the big things you mentioned then was that was being in the moment and being present. And I think there is research, and I think it came out of Harvard a couple of years ago, which says that the average person in countries like Australia will spend 49% of their day thinking about the future mm-hmm. and 34% of their day thinking about the past. Now, that gives us 15% of our day where we're actually thinking about what's happening as it's happening. And that's really sad when you consider that 100% of our life is the present moment, yet we only show up for 15% of it. And we're not bad people, but you know what it's like. It's, it's sitting around the dinner table with your partner or your housemate or your loved ones and where you've wanted, you've wanted to be there all day, you couldn't wait for dinner time, but then you get there and you realise you haven't listened to what anyone said for the last five minutes because you're worried about an email you've got to send the next morning or you're stressing about a meeting that, that went wrong during the day or we've just got to get better at being wherever we are. And, I mean, we have no control over what happened yesterday and we certainly have no control over what's going to come up in the future. The more time we spend worrying about those things, the more anxious we become. What we do have control over is right now. And so we've got to get better at being wherever we are. It's a lovely bit of advice and I can't remember who said it because I have a a four-month-old who doesn't sleep and I'm exhausted, but it was wherever you are, be there. And that's very simple, but I think it says that if you want to be happy, that's a really important. Do you know what else? I, I was at Crossroads in my life and I've talked about this on the podcast before. Many years ago, I left my corporate job and decided to set up my own business. But in between all of that, I also bought a house and I had to service a mortgage and <laughs> I didn't have a job. And I was starting to fret a little bit, you might yes. say. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was in the car and I never got his name, but I was listening to the ABC. Do you know, sometimes these things, they're just life-changing. At that yeah. moment, I heard an Aboriginal elder talking about happiness and he said that the problem with white people, is what he called them, is that happiness is in the future. Mm. And for him, happiness, the way he described it, was at the moment but also with your interactions at that moment, whether they be with smelling a flower or watching a bird or living in that moment. And when you think about how Aboriginal people came to be, they weren't doing the grocery shopping for what they're going to eat on Friday night. They lived that, that they, you know, whatever they were going to eat, they would find that now and eat that now, whatever you were going to, you know what I mean? It's totally, totally. If you can get your head around that, I think that that's a big start to finding happiness in life. It's a a really powerful sentiment. I cover this in, in one of the chapters of the book. It's called The If. Well, variation of that is called the if and then model of happiness, where we say to ourselves, if I buy that car, then I feel happy. Or if I get a promotion, then I feel happy. If If I buy this house and live in a suburb like this, well, then I feel happy. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting those things. They're perfectly healthy things to aspire towards, but you can't attach happiness to them because what happens is you buy that car and that feels nice for six months. And then in six months time, someone drives past in a nicer car and you think, oh, no, actually, I need to drive that car. If I drive a car like that, I better feel happy. Or we get yeah. a, it's exactly, you know, we get a promotion in Australia and it feels nice for a bit. And then a year later, we see a job come up advertised and it's better than what we've got. We think, actually, if I get that job, then we just keep replacing these things all the time. And, and as you say, Cheryl, we, happiness comes from what is happening in, in this very moment. And it sounds very deeply philosophical. It is all we ever have is right now. But yeah, you know, the it. happiest time of my day is every morning when I have my coffee and toast and I live in very, very urban Sydney, just six k's out of the city, but I live next to a park and very often a kookaburra will come and perch itself on my balcony. Yeah. Wonderful. 
See, what a way to start your day. I actually feel like the luckiest, richest person in the world. But that's a lovely that's a lovely comment because that there is something a lot of people would miss, I think, because we're too busy, you know, on carsales.com or whatever it is or on, <laughs> on, or on, or on Instagram or whatever it is, yeah. looking for joy in, in the palm of our hand and our phone. But every night, my three-year-old son, he's now three and a half, when it starts to get dark, I mean, he is the most present person I know. Yes, every, children every time, are. It's extraordinary. Every time a train, we live about probably 500 metres from a train line and it's a very distant, you can hear the train the distance, but he never misses it. As soon as the train goes by, he goes, toot, toot, every time. I, <laughs> hey, right, I, come here, okay. but, I but love it's, that. It's good. And then if there's birds in the morning, you know, I've told him he can't get out of bed till we hear birds in the morning. So he lies next to me and he just lies when he's, and I, I don't even notice them. I sort of, as adults, we wake up and our brain starts to tick over and we're going, okay, this done, I'm going to get this done, I'm going to get here by, and we get a little bit stressed about our day. And my son lies there and he says, Daddy, I can hear birdies. And I think, really? Oh, yeah, you can too. So, I mean, we, we do this thing now just to come back to what, what you are saying before about your coffee, but my son and I now, when it's about to get dark, uh, it's about probably 5.15 now in, in Melbourne when it starts to get dark, but we lie on the trampoline and we look into the sky uh. and we look into the sky until we can see stars emerge. Yeah. And so we'll lie there and say, I can see a star. And I think the first couple of stars we can see are planets, but I haven't gone into explain out to him yet. But <laughs> um, but it's a really, it takes us five minutes lying on our back, staring at the sky, waiting till we can see stars. And it is it's magic. Mean, you told me five years ago, that'd be the whole of my day. I think you're a bit crazy. But now it's just the most beautiful thing to do. And it's about just being wherever we are, I guess. It is, it is. So that then leads me through to say gratitude, empathy and mindfulness. Um, and let's start with gratitude. Um, talk to me about your take on that. Chief, before I get into that, it's very, funny, <laughs> it's, it's very funny. It's very funny you say, at the start you introduced the book as The Resilience Project with the subtitle of Finding Happiness Through Gratitude, Empathy and Mindfulness. I am the author of this book, but I still don't know exactly what it's called. I don't know... <laughs> I don't know if this is a very long title. I don't know if the title is, maybe the title is Finding Happiness Through Gratitude, Empathy, Mindfulness and Resilience Project is our brand. I actually don't. Well, Jim, can I tell you the way I read it? Because I've been in this business a long time. Okay, please do. So the title is, you can thank me later. The title, I think, is The Resilience Project because that's just, it's easy to get your head around. And so if I was going to recommend it, I'd say, why don't you get Hugh's book? It's called The Resilience Project, right? Yeah, okay. The subtitle is finding happiness through gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. Right, okay. Because you can't call a book that, right? Sophie knows. <laughs> well, it's funny because we had that many emails back and forth about the name. And yeah. and I, I still, I just realised as you introduced it, I thought, I actually don't know what my book's called. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You know now. Exactly okay. like that. <laughs> uh, we, well, maybe we should have made the, the finding happiness through gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness a bit smaller. I don't know. Anyway. Gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. So, well, look, we just talked about gratitude. When you, the if and then model of happiness is is the issue we've got, but but gratitude is when you pay attention to what you've got, not worry about what you don't have. Yeah. Um, we the the a really lovely example I give. Well, I think it's a lovely example because it's in the book. But um, a lovely example I give in the book is my first day in this school in India. The kids said, "Do you want to see our playground?" And I said, "I'd love to see a playground." They took me out to a an old rusty broken swing that was just in the middle of the desert there one of the swings was completely detached i was just dangling the other one was all twisted and knotted and they were standing in front of it pointing over their shoulders and they were saying sir have a look and i didn't look at their faces i just looked at the swings and so i assumed they're saying look how bad this is this is all we've got but then i looked at their faces and i realized there were huge smiles on their face mm. and they're saying hey sir check this out mm. what they're saying was how lucky are we 
mm. got play equipment here. Mm. And that's gratitude, the ability to pay attention to what you've got and not stress about. Do you know, I want to touch on that a little bit. You know, um, I came from, I come from a big family, not I came. I'm still part of it, thank goodness. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's six children and two adults and my parents were immigrants from Lebanon. And we came to Redfern and we lived in a, on top of a butcher in Redfern. And as you can imagine, I don't know if you know Sydney that well, but that was really rough as all get out at the time, yeah, right? Yeah. But the butcher owner was uh, a Lebanese Australian man from my parents' town who gave that to people as they came to Australia to find their feet and then move on. And then another family would get it and another family would get it. Wow. I mean, just tremendous kindness, oh, right? But it was one big room with one kitchen and a bathroom and there was eight adults and we were there for over a year. Now, my memory of that versus my siblings is pure happiness. And I remember my mother going to Best and Less and getting us um, swimsuits, right, and mine was left behind at the shop. And so I had to swim in my undies and singlet. But we were swimming up and down that room. Now, my I could have sworn there was water, there was a pool in there. When I look back at that, is that? Now, my sisters don't see it in the same way. They, don't, they, they felt that we were poor. They felt that we didn't have very much, whereas I didn't feel that at all. I felt that we were very lucky. That's a beautiful story. I've just finished reading Billy Connolly's. I'm a huge fan of Billy Connolly and I've just finished reading his book, who tells a similar story of growing up in commissioning flats and not knowing that he was poor and just thinking... He couldn't yeah. wait, you know, bath time with his sister Flo, they'd fill up the sink and they would sit in the bath and sit in the sink together, the kitchen sink together, that was his bath. And yeah. he just has these wonderful memories of it and thinks it was just so terrific. So it's fascinating, isn't it? All these people that what our kids want more than anything. We people work so hard so they can take them on holidays to Noosa and make sure they've got a pool and all this kind of stuff. Kids just want us. They just want our, mm. our love and affection and that's enough for them to be mm. happy. It's what I see people in these really big homes, gigantic homes with a gigantic yard and all their children want is to be inside sitting on their laps or playing nearby or playing on the floor with them or playing Lego. Yeah. That's what they want. You yeah, know? totally. So gratitude for me has always been something that I've noticed. Do you think we can teach it? Yeah, well, I think like anything in life, if you want to be good at something, you have to practice it. And so... I have always been very fascinated with the science of happiness. And so there is research out there, which has been um, by a guy called Professor, Professor Dr. Martin Seligman, or Professor, I can't remember. Anyway, his, his research on how to practice gratitude has been cited over 6,200 times in academic papers around the world. He says, if you write down three things that went well for you every single day, you can write it on a notepad in a journal on the shower screen door, however you want. But if you record three things that went well for you every single day, what happens is after 21 days, you start to rewire your brain to start scanning the world for the positives. We are so good at Australia and, and I, th I think it's seven to one. The, uh, the negativity bias says currently we are seven times more likely to notice a negative than a positive. But by practicing gratitude, you start to rewire your brain so you can become more likely to notice a positive than a negative. So that makes you a much happier person when you are someone who walks around scanning the world for the good stuff. Some people naturally are very good at it, um, but like you say, others need to practice. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How do you teach children that? Well, it's, it's a wonderful question. We, I've been doing this for 10 years in schools. And the first two years in schools, I would tell them, you've got to write down things that went well for you. But as a teacher, I'm presenting to, you know, 400, 500 kids at a time and I'm watching their faces and I was thinking not one of these kids is going to go home and write down three things that went well. I just knew as a teacher it wasn't a sticky concept, gratitude for primary school kids, for secondary school kids. And then I realised I had this story from when I was in India. It's a beautiful story, but one of the kids in India, honestly, one of the highlights of my trip to India was just he was in grade three, uh, so he was nine years old back then and didn't, you know, slept on the dirt floor, all that kind of stuff. Every single time he saw something, he would walk around the schoolyard and he kept saying dis. He would point to things and say dis to me all the time. And I was thinking, what on earth is he talking about? But I realised after a few weeks, he was trying to say the word this and the things that he was pointing at were things that he was grateful for. So when he was putting his shoes on and tying up his shoelaces, sir, dis, what he was saying was, i got shoes in my feet. Some of the kids here don't have shoes, but I do. The big smile on his face. Or lunchtime would come around and we'd give him a bowl of rice because he couldn't afford to bring his own lunch to school. So we cooked him rice. Uh, and when I say we, the, it was the staff who would cook the rice. He would walk past me with his cup of rice and he'd say, sir, this, this, this. What he was saying was, how lucky am I? Mm. I get lunch here every day with a huge smile on his face. Mm. And when I started telling that story at primary schools and secondary schools, the kids would, their faces would just light up and I would see them walking out of the school hall and they'd be pointing at things around the school, whether it was carpet on the floor going this or whether it was each other saying this or whether it was their teacher or the school ground or the or the technology in the school, I would just hear it. I would just hear it ringing around the playground at lunch. I'd be leaving the school lunchtime after presenting for the first half of the day and I'd hear kids running around the school ground yelling this and running to the fence and pointing at me and saying this. And I realised that that was the hook. You know, as a teacher, you need to have a hook. If you want to teach them, there's got to be a hook. And I didn't have it for gratitude until I started telling that story. And and um, to be honest, it's been 10 years of telling the story and it's getting a little bit difficult to keep telling it with the same passion but I just feel compelled to because I know it works for kids and it's a simple illustration isn't it it's it is and very I have, simple. totally we have parent nights that we host in the schools we work with and I have parents coming up to me after the talk saying I had to come because my kids were just banging on about this dis thing and I didn't know what they were talking about so I had to come and find out what it was so they actually go home and tell their parents about it, which is really nice as well. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about empathy. Um, I was I saw Ben Quilty. Do you know Ben Quilty, the Australian painter? No, I don't. He's um, you should look him up. Fabulous art. But anyway, he's got two kids, and I think they're, you know, ten or twelve or something. And we were talking about empathy, and he said that he felt that that's something that needed to be taught. That yes. you don't stop talking to your kids about empathy, and. 
that to me was a moment. I, I kind of really, until I saw your book, I thought that these things we just learned and we picked up as we got on. But he was saying to me, no, I think that it is something you have to teach children. And empathy, I think, is probably a little bit harder, don't you think, than gratefulness? Yes, I do. And gratitude. Talk to me about that, teaching empathy. Um, well, it's a lovely point, and I think Ben's point is even more relevant now because at a very simple level, I'll give you an example. Before we went into lockdown 2.0 in Melbourne, I think we're calling it, uh, we, my son and my wife and my daughter, my daughter's only um, four and a half months old, but we were out at a restaurant having dinner. Uh, there was a table next to us, a family of uh, there were three kids that are all between the age of about probably 12 and six, and all three of them were on devices um, during dinner. And a, a lady was trying to get into the restaurant with a pram and she couldn't, she just couldn't get in. They were pretty close to the door and she was trying to work her way and she was trying to get people's attention. And the three kids there, all three of them missed the opportunity to go and help this lady. And so one of the staff had to sort of put down what they're doing and go and help. I feel like 10, 15 years ago, that family would have been chatting about their day, just talking and sort of very present looking around what was going on. And this lady would have come with the pram and the mum and dad would have said, oh, um, you know, whatever your name is, can you please go and help? And she would have gone up and helped the lady. The lady would have said, thank you so much. That's very nice of you. That girl would have felt really good about herself that she'd help someone. And she would have had this immediate feedback that, gosh, doing things for other people makes me feel nice. It's a, it's a, that, that is a nice feeling. So I feel like kids are missing the opportunities right now to be there for other people because they're staring at their device a lot of the time. Not just kids, us as adults as well. We are absolutely guilty of this as well. Mm. So to come back to your point, Cheryl, I, I do think we need to be teaching our kids more because they're missing the opportunities that we saw all the time growing up as kids. We had our head up, we were looking around and if something happened to someone, we thought, I'll go and do that for someone. I mean, the other reason we need to teach it is because when kids are communicating through devices, I think they're not learning. I mean, if I was, you know, growing up around, yeah, if it's kinder or if it's early primary school, you know, that thing of you, you might say something mean about someone, you're not a mean person, but you might say something like, I don't know, something that might, I heard a bit in the schoolyard growing up was not to me, but kids around me was you're fat. And someone might say something like you're fat. And then the person who says that sees the look on the kid's face who they're talking to and they see it's hurt them and they see they're upset and they think, oh, I don't want to do that. I, I, that, that. I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to make that person feel like that. It doesn't make me feel good. Now kids are doing that communication via a device and they're, and they're saying you're fat or you're ugly or whatever it is and they don't see the other child's response. So they're not learning that naturally the way we learnt about how we can make other people feel. Yeah. Do you know what I think it also is, and, and you might disagree with me here, but it's this hot housing of children, the fact that parents now, their children are the most important people in the world. And of course they are, you know, they are to you. But it seems to me sometimes you find these parenting style where there's nothing beyond the child. It's all about their children. I don't know. I mean, for me growing up, you know, my mother always made us aware. We were always encouraged to bring other children home, even though she had so many. Yeah. But we were always aware of other people. Yeah, that's a great point. It's something we talk about a lot in our in our parent nights, but um, this parents these days, and in a second I'll talk about why psychologists believe this is happening, but parents these days are... Uh, I think they used to be called helicopter parents. I believe they're called yeah. drone parents now because they are, are right they? over the top. Yeah, <laughs> um, and they're, hot, they're hothousing their kids because they're wanting them to be that perfect species. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what's happened now is they're fighting their kids' battles for them. And so by yes. that, I mean, when you and I were at school, if we got in trouble, we would think, oh, God, now we go home and deal with mum and dad. And mum and dad would 
back up the teacher 100% of the time. And sometimes I'd, I'd say things to mum like, no, nah, it's not fair because a mum would say, well, darling, life's not fair, so you have to deal with that. And so I learned to deal with it. But now... Resilience. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's exactly yeah. right. But now we have kids going home and telling their parents what happened at school and then the parents will take their kids' side over the teacher. It doesn't work like that. Kids are going to learn to fight their own battles because when they leave school, they're going to have to fight their own battles and sometimes it won't be fair, but they need to know that that's life. So there are quite a few psychologists who believe very simply the reason this change in parenting has come about is because that going back 30 or 40 years, the average family in Australia had four kids. Well, I think it was something like 4.2 kids. So parents would send their kids off and go, right, off you go. You'll probably all come back. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now with one or two kids, it's uh, I think the average family's got two kids. I think it is now. But they'll send their kids off and go, well, it's only two of you. I've got to make sure everything's perfect for both of you and I can manage that and nothing can happen, nothing can go wrong for either of you. And, and um, that's brought about this really protective fight the battles and clear a path for them. But, but life is never like that. I mean, we've all discovered in 2020 that life is never, we have to fight our own battles. We have to, we, we, there's no clear pathway for us to just march happily along. We're going to have battles along the way and we need to know how to fight them ourselves. Raising that, in, we are in COVID and that's why you and I are talking remotely, but there is that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of conversation around the interruption of schooling and the interruption of education and, and the interruption of life as young people knew it. There is that. And and, and I hear that and I, I absolutely empathise with that. But I feel that it's going a step too far that, you know, I'm hearing parents talk about the fact that their life is ruined, that this is terrible for them and, you know, will they ever recover? Well, of course they will recover because they're humans and they're resilient. And also they're living in Australia or they're living, we are living in affluent times. They will recover. Yeah, it, it, it becomes, and we said this just off air before, but this becomes part of their journey. It's part of their story. I look at my book and I realise that someone said to me the other day and said every single chapter in your book pretty much is a heartache or a challenge or a, or a something you had to, at the time, was not very pleasant, but it's become part of your journey and shaped who you are. And I thought, my gosh, it's very true. You know, we all go through different traumatic events throughout our lives and this is just another one that we will become stronger because of it and we'll have stories to tell because of it and it'll connect us and it's all part of our, our journey really. So I've heard a couple of people saying, oh, it's so unfair, my, my daughter's in grade two and this is such a bad time for her or my son's in year 12, such a bad time. I, I think if you're in year 12, yep, this is not ideal and I, I feel for mm. people in year 12. Other than that... They will recover a, though. They yeah, will. totally, absolutely, and and they'll get through it, and yeah, it's it's um yeah. Hopefully, I'm- it'll make them stronger. I know that that's a cliche, but it does happen. Hopefully, what it does, it makes them think of other pathways to what they want to do as well. And these are sliding door moments. It's what you decide to do with it. Yeah, totally, and I I think we've all been caught up with not wanting to be overly flexible. I mean, I've seen. I think with the first lockdown and it was everyone's going to be homeschooling now and we've got to be teaching our kids at home, I I think that was incorrect. I think it should have been, look, Mm. just spend that time with the kids or set them tasks to do. It doesn't have to be, don't, doesn't have to be homeschooled. They don't have to learn this many lessons. This is six weeks that they're not going to be getting the normal education. Maybe this is the opportunity to spend time with your kids, really special time or or, I just feel like it was too regimented and too, we can't deviate from what we always do. It put too much pressure on families, too much pressure on parents to work. I agree. I agree totally. And also I think it disregarded the fact that we learn anyway by if you're part of a family unit or just the curiosity of being young, you know, reading, playing, all those things are, are, are lessons, aren't they? Well, I think play is the greatest 
way to learn, really. I, yeah. I, I mean, you couldn't tell my three-and-a-half-year-old son that COVID-19 is a bad thing. I mean, he's no. <laughs> absolutely bloody loving this. Mum yeah, and dad yeah. at home all the time. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we tend to project our own stress onto our kids a little bit too much, I think, and our own, you know, the expectations we put on ourselves, we can sort of put on our kids a bit and that can cause them stress, whereas we just relax a bit and let things happen. I, I think we'd be a bit better off sometimes. And that's hard for people that are hot housing to relax a little bit. Totally- I just want to touch on mindfulness. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so the funny one with mindfulness, and a lot of people are talking about mindfulness and it's very much a buzzword. I, I think the reason a lot of people don't gravitate towards it when they hear about it is, that, is they think the stereotypical thing of sitting you know, on a beach with your legs crossed, hands in the air, making strange noises, which it can be. That can be a good way of practising mindfulness and meditation. But mindfulness to me is very simply the ability to be calm and the ability to be present. Now, we are neither of those things in Australia right now. I mean, we're not calm. We are the second most medicated country in the world for anxiety disorder. So we are not calm. And there's a staggering statistic when you consider how the living conditions of this country. We are not calm. The next time you're in traffic and you slow down a bit, because you're trying to just get your bearings to work out where you are, you watch how disproportionate the person's response behind you is. I mean, they might have been inconvenienced three seconds. They're going to turn up three seconds later to where they wanted to. You watch how they respond. We are not calm. And we spoke about being present before. We're not overly present. Mindfulness is the ability to to just be present so you can feel more calm. So what we teach kids um, is it's not, we, we, we give them all the apps they can do the meditation with and teachers love taking the kids to meditation apps. But it could be going for a walk around the block and paying attention to what you could hear mm-hmm. for the whole walk of the block. Now, that might take you five to ten minutes and your, and your mind will wonder. You'll start thinking, what, what email do I need to send later or where am I going to get my lunch from or what are the kids doing? Or, But then, then you stop yourself and go, no, no, what can I hear? This is all about what I can hear. That's all I'm concentrating mm-hmm. on. And you might be lucky, depending on where you are, to hear certain birds. You might hear cars. You might hear a train. You might hear a bus. It doesn't matter what it is. Just pay attention to what it is for five to ten minutes and that is being present. Maybe it's what you can feel, the wind on your face, the sun in, in your, you know, on your face, whatever it is. Stopping and paying attention to what's happening as it's happening, that is quite literally how you become more mindful. Have you seen Julia Baird's book? Foster I haven't. Reasons? No, you're giving me no. some good recommendations here. No, so yeah, highly I'm recommend that one as well because that saved me through COVID. It's just short stories of her musing about gratitude and mindfulness, you know, just noticing everything around you. And it's beautiful. What's the book called? It's called Phosphorescence. Okay, a little less confusing than my title. <laughs> little, well, actually, it doesn't have a subtitle, I don't think. Okay. It's just straight phosphorescence. <laughs> anyway, I don't know, but I highly recommend it. She's got a really beautiful take on the world. She's always, I think her way of, as a person, because she suffered terrible illness, She, um, she's, I think she's had cancer twice, and she has used... I think, just just through her own practice of the way she sees the world and very, very simply, like you describe it, is just being present and noticing and enjoying the beauty that is around you. You I think my wife's reading that book at this very moment. I I, I think it's on her bedside table. Now you explain it. I think she's read it now, yeah. Yours is more of a how-to, I think, and hers is more just the practice of it, really. Yeah. Um, And so the books would probably go hand in hand. Do you know, I think this book is so timely, and we might have said this off air, but I really do think every person, every parent should have a copy of this book. I really do. It's called The Resilience Project, because I know the title and you don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Finding Happiness Through Gratitude, Empathy and Mindfulness. Hugh, thank you so much for your time today. Have you ever interviewed an author that didn't know the title of their own book? No, this is a first and I've done many.
<laughs> but I've enjoyed it thoroughly nonetheless. Thank you Lovely so much. To. Thanks so much for having me, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.